Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today's October 20th, 2022, and I'm joined today by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today, Dr. Matthews, we want to talk about what's wrong with common good conservatism. And as you know, uh, this is something that's been a concern of mine for several years. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm going to be on a tear here, but I hope that you will uh, also sort of jump in <laughs> and interrupt me if necessary uh, to share your thoughts as well. And I want to start off with sort of a little bit of a an introduction to you know what what the what the conservative movement was sort of pre-Trump and sort of before the last few years. Uh, conservatism, like like any other political coalition or any other philosophical coalition, conservatism has always been a coalition. And the what we might call the Reagan coalition that that won in nineteen eighty and really dominated the Republican Party until recently was a coalition of social conservatives, uh, traditionalists, uh, business conservatives, uh, economic growth conservatives who really just cared about low taxes and low regulation and economic liberty, uh, libertarians who really sort of you know take a just leave us alone approach to the government and let us do our thing. Uh, then, of course, there were the anti-communists, and these a lot of these were even Democrats who gave up on the softness of the Democratic Party and decided to become Republicans because they were so anti-communist. And that also included people who really cared more than anything else but about the national defense and the strength of the country. So you had this coalition of a lot of different viewpoints that all sort of came together uh, as the modern conservative movement in order to win. And if you go back far enough into the 50s and early 60s, you have a, a guy named Frank Meyer who wrote for National Review, and mm -hmm. he really sort of proposed this. He called it fusionism. And the idea was that social conservatives, business conservatives, and libertarians had enough in common that if they all came together, they could, they could put together a winning coalition. And this was essentially the Reagan coalition. This was essentially the National Review approach, uh, National Review being the leading conservative magazine at that time. And, you know, with any coalition, there's always some discontent and there's always some compromise because libertarians and social conservatives, for instance, don't agree on a whole bunch of things. Uh, but in order to put together a winning coalition, they had to sort of be willing to tolerate those disagreements and compromise in order to to get at least some of what they were looking for from politics. And I think it's fair to say, Dr. Matthews, that this this fusionist conservative libertarian coalition worked. It succeeded uh, again, beginning in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. And it, it gave us a country that prized economic growth. It gave us a country that prized individual liberty. It gave us a country that at least sort of tipped the hat in the direction of family values and traditional values. Uh, it defeated communism. Um, it defeated the Soviet Union. 
And it resulted in an economy that more or less grew at a pretty decent pace, uh, you know, for four decades. Well, let me mention a couple of things here. One about the coalition is- issue, and we're, and we're talking on the day that it was announced that Lynn Trust had to re- was was resigning from being uh, prime minister of England because uh, the coalition had fallen apart. And you're yeah. talking about coalitions, and of course, in a parliamentary state, you have to build the coalitions inside the government. Whereas in the, the, I would call the uniqueness and the genius of the American system are the coalitions are built outside the government and then you get people elected. So what you're talking about is a coalition that was built among various groups, but it's not part of the government. It's outside the government. It's part of a movement. And so that, uh, that, that, that allows us, I, I would argue, to be more stable and that, that coalition is held together fairly well for a long time. I think you make a really important point, and you called it a movement, and I think that's right. Movements last longer than just parliamentary coalitions, you know, and you, and and so you could say that this that this fusionist conservative movement lasted probably fifty years and was successful for the most part for forty of those fifty years, as far as the policies that were enacted. I mean, when Ronald Reagan came into office, we had, what was it, a 90% highest marginal tax rate on <laughs> on, on very wealthy people. I, I think um, it was lower than that then, but it was still very high. We had a, we had a country that uh, was insecure about its place in the world. Uh, we had a country that thought that the, America's de- best days were behind it. And that conservative coalition really, really changed the country and was very, very successful. And of course, I'm not arguing that only Republican presidents were elected. Um, But when we talk about the conservative movement, we're really talking about, as you say, a movement that's outside electoral politics and that even has influence on Democrats. I mean, remember that it was Bill Clinton who essentially imposed the most radical welfare reform, or at least agreed to mm-hmm. the most radical welfare reform in our lifetimes. That was a conservative policy accomplishment, even if it was signed into place by a Democratic president. And, and after he vetoed it, I think, two previous efforts for that, but he saw the handwriting on the wall in the states. Right. So, you know, we, we see some of these parliamentary countries, especially like, like Italy or Israel, where it seems like they can't keep a governing coalition together more than about six months. Uh, and we're talking we're talking about that, as that's, you a lo- say, that's a long governing yeah. <laughs> in Italy. Yeah. And it, as you say, we're talking about a movement that is outside of politics. And thus, you know, if it's successful and if it is if it is a coherent coalition where they have more in common than they have dissimilar, uh, it can last for a very, very long time. And so that's sort of sort of the way I think we we would introduce sort of this baseline, the conservative coalition that you and I both grew up in, that you and I both have spent our policy careers in, um, that, that that was the this fusionist coalition that included social conservatives, libertarians, strong national defense people, uh, the business community, people who only cared about economic growth. That has been a winning coalition. Now, among the many things that Donald Trump accomplished, uh, one of the things he accomplished was the breaking up of this coalition. Uh, Donald Trump came to to office skeptical of free trade, skeptical of immigration, uh, focusing very, very hard on culture war. And, and let me uh, add, skeptical of foreign policy. I mean, he largely wanted to pull out of most areas, and uh, that create. I mean, that that created a, a problem for him in several places. Yeah, no, in fact, that was the next thing in my list here was essentially 
uh, not weakening national defense, but pulling back yes. from international engagement. And as we learned just last week, uh, when when Trump realized that he lost the election, uh, he basically put out an order to to get the U.S. immediately out of Afghanistan and Syria. Um, that that was his impulse. His impulse was to really pull back and sort of the heck with the rest of the world. And I think that that is reflected in the slogan "America First." I think that's reflected in the anti trade campaign, and I think it's also reflected in that executive order to you know sort of bring the troops home. Now, some of the changes I would argue that Trump made in the sort of conservative movement are probably very constructive. Um, we we have seen, for instance, that the Republican Party is becoming sort of more of a working class party, less identified with Wall Street. That's almost certainly a positive thing. Uh, we have seen that more Hispanics and more African Americans are voting Republican than they than they did before. That was that's certainly an improvement. Uh, so some of those changes, I think, are welcome additions to the sort of traditional conservative coalition. But I would argue, and I'm interested in what you think about this. I would argue that if you really take a completely dispassionate look at Donald Trump's election you see someone who essentially won by the skin of their teeth. They won by, Trump won by 20,000 votes here, 18,000 votes there. I mean, literally three or four counties in the country was was the only reason that Trump won. And in fact, you know, even on election night, early in the evening, you had Trump people sort of already explaining why they, why they lost. And then as the evening wore on, we actually found that Trump won by the skin of his teeth. And so what happened is, People decided that Trump had come out, come up with this new superior governing coalition, this new winning coalition, and that that's the way we need to move forward. Whereas I would argue that when you only barely win an election by the skin of your teeth, you're not proving a new winning coalition. It's more of an aberration. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's right. He won the, the three states he won that were uh, unusual, of course, was Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And and a Republican had not won any of those states going back to 1988. And so it was a it, it was an unusual coalition. And as you said, it was by a, a fairly small, th- uh, a few thousand votes in each state. So rather than coming in being humble about about that he came in trying to push a lot of things and uh you know there were democrats that agreed with him uh, on trade protectionism generally democrats have been involved in that so he he really jumbled the coalition to some extent and that has happened in years past i mean remember in the at the turn of the 1900s the democratic party was a very was a very very conservative party and the republicans were considered the liberal party in fact they called them after the civil war the radical republicans uh but woodrow wilson came in and uh with his progressive notions and the uh uh, late teens, like 1912, I think it was. And then, uh, and then Franklin Delano Roosevelt ended up turning the Democratic Party much more liberal. And so you had this sort of a, a reforming of the whole Democratic Party. And it's not impossible that what Trump has done is do a reforming of the parties as well. Well, I think that's true, obviously, that these things change over time. I'm, I'm trying to contrast a 
political coalition that barely won a single presidential election by the skin of their teeth to a different coalition that basically was a winning coalition for 40 years. So I'm trying to contrast that sort of fusionist conservative coalition with the Trump coalition. And the Trump coalition barely won one presidential election by the skin of its teeth and then didn't win the next one. So just purely from a sort of a political analysis standpoint, do you toss a conservative coalition that won more or less for 40 years for a coalition that barely won one presidential election by the skin of its teeth and then didn't win the next one? That's sort of the contrast I'm trying to establish there. Now, this is all sort of prelude to the conversation we want to have here about what is being described sometimes now as common good conservatism or national conservatism. Um, one of the things that Trump did by breaking up the established conservative fusionist coalition, when you break up a coalition like that, uh, you suddenly give oxygen to a lot of ideas that had been sort of subsumed <laughs> in the previous coalition. And the combination of Trump sort of breaking up the existing fusionist coalition, that combination combined with the internet and the fact that anybody with sort of a odd or marginal idea can set up a website, start a new journal, whatever, and give attention to their ideas has created this really interesting sort of ideological churn in the conservative movement. You have uh, movements, again, they call themselves common good conservatism. They call themselves national conservatism. And some of these movements have given rise to new journals. Uh, there's a Journal of American Greatness on the website. There's a Federalist website that is very, very hospitable to these uh, common good conservatism, national greatness kind of ideas. Uh, there's a brand new online journal called Compact that was started by Sorab Amari that is probably the most aggressive uh, online website for this idea of common good conservatism. Compact identifies itself as a radical journal. They call themselves radical. Um, there was a Notre Dame law professor named Patrick Deneen who wrote a book called Why Liberalism Failed. And Patrick, when, he, when Patrick Deneen talks about liberalism, he's not talking about progressivism. He's talking about classical liberalism. He's talking about John Locke and Adam Smith and Montesquieu and Edmund Burke. He's talking about the ideas behind the American founding, the emphasis on individual liberty, federalism, um, all of those ideas. He takes them on head first and says, this, this, this experiment, this American experiment that emphasizes individual liberty above everything else, it has failed. And you, you you look at this and you say, well, this this person is a is a law professor at Notre Dame. This must be a fairly mainstream person. But these are not to say that John Locke was wrong, to say that the American emphasis on individual liberty was wrong is not mainstream. It's a new radical idea that is, you know, I would use the term infecting the conservative movement and trying to take us in a very, very different direction. And so increasingly you have new web new websites new organizations but also some other well established organizations that are starting to become very hospitable to these ideas of common good conservatism um the claremont institute in california has become sort of a leader in some of these ideas there's an organization in dc called the conservative partnership institute 
that is very aggressive with these ideas. Um, and even some mainstream conservative organizations, even like the Heritage Foundation and some state-based think tanks, are being very open to these ideas about um, common good conservatism. So what we want to do, I think, for the rest of the podcast is talk about the problems with common good conservatism and give some examples. Now, you mentioned earlier the idea of the American model or the American experiment. And I think this is really fundamentally important because one of the things that's unique about the American experiment is that governments prior to the American experiment basically consisted of the strong imposing their will on the weak, whether the strong was the king or whether the strong was a dictator or whether the strong was some some faction or some group in society. But basically what politics was, was the strong imposing their will on the weak. And a key idea in the American founding and in a key idea in the American system is that we're not going to have a system where the strong can impose their will on the weak. Uh, we're going to create a system of self-government where people choose the rules for themselves that they're going to operate under. And the founders were were doing this as a purposeful contrast to monarchies and things like that, where basically the strong just impose their will on the weak. But the founders were also aware of the fact that, you know, in a pure democracy, basically you're going to have these pendulum swings based on whatever happens to be popular or passionate at the moment. And so in my view, at least the founders created an inefficient system with lots of roadblocks, lots of hoops that have to be jumped through, lots of hurdles that have to be jumped over in order for the people to make change. But ultimately, the people can choose the rules under which they rule themselves, as opposed to someone imposing those rules on someone else. Now, this emphasis on individual liberty is certainly not perfect, because as you and you and I have done previous podcasts on this idea that you know, free markets and self-government sometimes gives us results that we don't choose. Sometimes it gives us the result we don't prefer, but at least it is a result that is achieved through, uh, you know, self-governing ends rather than a result that is being imposed on us by somebody else. And so I've always tried to say that, you know, liberty is not perfect. It's just, it's just the best alternative we have to the strong imposing their views on the weak. So what's what's interesting and kind of scary to me about common good conservatism is that common good conservatism essentially says, okay, so we've lost, the, the conservative project has lost, and so we need to get in now and we need to play the game of government power. We need to play the game of the strong imposing their views on the weak, uh, and we need to become the strong. And that way we can use government to impose our views on society. They want to play this game. They want to play the game of being able to impose your views and your preferences on other people because they're convinced that their idea of the common good is the right one. But the problem, of course, is who gets to decide what the common good is? Who gets to decide that? If you're going to create a structure where government can be used to impose views upon the whole country, then who gets to decide what those views are? Who gets to decide what common good conservatism is? So I think this is sort of the key flaw in this idea of common good conservatism 
is that there's there's really nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new about people trying to use government to impose their views on everybody else. What was really new and unique was the American system that sort of tries to prevent that from happening. Now, one of the reasons why why I'm on this rant today on this topic is that there was an article that came out today in the Federalist on the Federalist website written by John Daniel Davidson and the title of this article is we need to stop calling ourselves conservatives. And I have to credit Mr. Davidson for this because I've been saying for a long time that what you guys are calling common good conservatism is not conservatism. It's not. Whatever else it is, it's not conservatism. And so at least Mr. Davidson here is being honest and saying we need to stop calling ourselves conservatives because what we're advocating is not conservative. I want to read some highlights from this article just to show you sort of how radical this approach is. Mr. Davidson says, the conservative project has largely failed and it is time for a new approach. Now, what is animating this? What is frustrating the common good conservatives? Well, he lists a few of these things in the article. He says, marriage as it has been understood for thousands of years has been changed. So so there he's talking about same-sex marriage. He says, the First Amendment no longer works. And what he means by that is this idea of conservatives being discriminated against on social media and things like that. We've lost any semblance of control over our borders. Well, I, I think we would certainly agree with him on that. Uh, we've lost the fundamental distinction between men and women. Well, I would agree with him on that. So these are the things that are frustrating the common good conservatives. They are looking at society as it exists in 2022, and they're saying, we don't like same-sex marriage. We don't like the fact that America is really no longer a religious nation. Uh, we don't like all this wokeness. Uh, we don't like the gender confusion. Uh, and so that must mean that the conservative project has failed. Now, I find this to be somewhat amusing because I, literally a, a guy named Josh Hammer wrote an article online about how the conservative project has failed. And his argument was that we have failed to overturn Roe v. Wade. And then like six months later, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. <laughs> so, you know, I was thinking, OK, so has the conservative project still failed? Well, you know, I I I want to challenge Davidson's premise on this, because essentially what his argument is that conservative values that have been that have uh, guided us for so long are largely dead. They're being overtaken by the left as they promote things. But I, I, I think that's just wrong. And uh, well, the the reason I say that is because. Conser the average people out there, I think, are generally still holding to conservative values. I mean, uh, parents are standing up and demanding change in schools. The woke left is trying to change the schools. Parents are stepping up and stopping that. And that's one of the reasons why Glenn Youngkin is now governor of, of Virginia. Uh, multiple races are standing up against uh, critical race theory and other efforts to uh, the anti-racist and those kinds of things. School boards, DAs, city councils, uh, these many of them are being recalled in some of the most egregious areas where they're imposing that. So uh, because you see a movement out there, I would still argue that these are largely uh, minority movements that are pushing the LGBT, uh, transgender things and so forth. But they the media is behind them. The left is behind them. 
they get an awful lot of, of attention. But I think that's not where the majority, the, uh, and I'd argue the large majority of Americans are, even if they disagree some on some of their elements of politics. So his notion that these things are dead, I just, I just find, I find wrong. It may be that at some point they are, but I think that, uh, I think it is. And what this does is it takes me back to the year 1980. And remember, things were going poorly for Jimmy Carter in in the year 1980, and 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 some of the years from his uh, uh, presidency from 1977 to through 80. Reagan comes in and is inaugurated in 81, but it it created a real malaise out there among people who thought, "Are we just going to pot?" And of course, Jerry Falwell, uh, a Baptist minister from. Uh, Virginia decided to started to form the moral majority to say, no, I don't these these groups that are saying this, the things that are happening, the economics and so forth. I don't think that's where the majority is. And he formed the moral majority. Ronald Reagan gets elected. And I, I still remember from uh, uh, the evangelical Hal Lindsey, who wrote a book called Countdown to Armageddon that he published in 1980. He just saw so many things on the uh, uh, on the horizon that were just upsetting everything we believed in that he said, we're, you know, we're heading for Armageddon. Of course, Ronald Reagan gets elected in 80 comes in in 81 and things begin to change. So I just, I I would, I would, if I were facing Davidson right now, I would challenge his premise. I think there are certainly people out there who are, who are challenging and threatening to the, what we call the traditional values, but I don't think that's majority. And it'd be interesting to see if the election comes up, if the, that those traditional value people end up throwing out a lot of these people who are forcing this stuff on us. I, I think you're exactly right. And so one of my complaints with this common good conservative movement. And one of my complaints with this idea that the conservative project has failed is it strikes me as a very impatient, short-sighted conclusion. Uh, It's that ignores the ebbs and flows and the pendulum swings of public opinion. And as you rightly point out, I think right now you can look and see that the pendulum right now is swinging against radical gender ideology, It is swinging back against wokeness. It is swinging back against schools teaching radical ideology to children. Uh, It is swinging back against Roe v. Wade, against, you know, radical abortion uh, policy. And to conclude that the conservative project has failed after the Supreme Court has overturned Roe, after we has, have succeeded in a 40-year project of trying to come up with a more conservative Supreme Court, uh, just strikes me as just impatient and ignoring the sort of swings and trends that happen in politics. And I think part of what's going on here literally is the voices that are championing these ideas are voices that would have been marginalized before Donald Trump, mm-hmm. they would have been marginalized within the traditional Reaganite conservative movement. But because that's been broken up, Pandora's box has opened and oxygen is now being given to a lot of these sort of ideas that are not particularly well thought out. I want to read a few more things from this article just because I think it's so glaring and so extreme. Um, He faults conservatism because the heart of conservatism is to preserve and defend. Mm -hmm. But but he says you cannot preserve or defend something that is dead. Right. 
So his point is that it's over. It's over. The, the, the conservative project has failed. And the only option we have is to try to seize the power of government and use it to our advantage. So it's really, it's losing faith in our institutions. It's losing faith in the American people themselves to be able to self-govern themselves. It's a very elitist view. It's it's a view that there's a there's a group of us here who know what's best. There's a group of us here who knows what the common good is. And we really need to just use the power of government to impose our view on other people. This is also part of this philosophy that really bothers me. It's a very sort of anti-free market policy. Uh, Davidson in this article ridicules the idea of sheer profit, that the drive for profit is part of what has made things stop working. He refers to market-obsessed libertarians. Mm -hmm. He talks about the Republican first priority for tax cuts for big business at the expense of everything else. So, you know, these are people who they don't trust markets to deliver the right result. They don't trust our self-government institutions to deliver the right result. And so, what they really want to do, again, is seize the power of government to impose their view on the country. Now, what's kind of comical about this is that when you actually understand what they want, you know, I have to wonder what single digit percentage of the American people would ad- actually advocate for these things. Well, because what they want, I mean, there's literally he he, he talks in this article about sort of what the goals of this of this common good conservatism movement would be. He says you have to dispose of outdated and irrelevant notions about small government. The government will have to become in the hands of national conservatives a blunt instrument. We will use antitrust powers to break up the largest Silicon Valley firms. Uh, we will do away with no-fault divorce we will provide generous subsidies to families with small children. We will outlaw completely abortion, completely. We will jail women who have abortions, and we will jail doctors who perform abortions. Uh, drag queen story hours should be outlawed. Parents who take their children to drag shows should be arrested and charged with child abuse. Doctors who perform gender-affirming surgery should be thrown in prison and have their medical licenses revoked. Teachers who expose their children to explicit material should be not just fired, but criminally prosecuted. Now, you and I might very well agree about some of these issues. We we might very well agree that drag queen story hour is troubling. We might we might agree that surgeons should not be performing gender affirmed gender affirming interventions on underage children. Uh, we might very much agree that teachers should not be teaching explicit material in classrooms. But what's unique here is the the ad the advocating the idea that government power should be used to enforce our preferences and punish those who are doing things that we disagree with. And here, here's where it gets to me to be the, the, the real crux of the problem that he's stating here, because 
you've used the term common uh, common good conservatives and so forth. And, of course, as you point out in the title, he thinks you ought to get rid of the term conservative. And it's the the term conservative, libertarian and things like that for people who are who are generally in those movements. When you start stepping outside of that movement, someone will say, well, look, I you know, I thought you I thought you supported free markets. And now you're saying this. So those the general terms that uh, guided um conservatives, free market people, libertarians, and so forth, sort of kept you within a a loose boundary. So when he says, and I'm quoting here, whatever the term or image, the imperative that conservatives must break from the past and forge a new political identity cannot be overstated. You need to forge a new political identity. And what concerns me here is, I, and I don't want to... You have people who always go back and identify Hitler and Nazism and so forth. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to say that completely, but I've just finished a book on what was happening in Germany in the 30s, uh, Hitler's rise to power in the war and so forth. And what you had there was you had a very bad economy in Germany, in part imposed arguably to some extent by the uh, by the the war reparations that were going on there, but you also had communists moving in, and that was a you know coming over from Russia. You had the Jews there who were not doing, as far as I could tell, anything new. But you had to have an enemy. You had to say things. These groups here are doing things that are 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 not appropriate, and we have got to change our identity and do something different. And we've got to use the power of government to do that. That is that's that's a Hitler esque approach. And I'm not saying he's Hitler. I'm just saying it's a it's that kind of approach that that raises red flags for us to say, oh, if you're beginning to advocate that, that could go down a very bad trail at some point. And I would broaden it out. I would say, you know, as I tried to say in the introduction to this podcast, it's typical of government that someone seizes the power of government and uses it to enforce their preferences and to punish their enemies. Right, which is exactly what uh, the progressives are trying to do right now. Yes, and and this is the progressive means. The progressive means is we have we want to fundamentally change society, as Barack Obama said, and we will do it by any means necessary. And conservatives, by contrast, have always said, no, that's wrong. <laughs> you don't you don't try to accomplish you, you don't use the power of government to try to accomplish your preferences by any means necessary. And what these common good conservatives are doing is they are emulating the theory and the methods of progressives. They're saying, yes, uh, let's do away. I mean, fundamentally, they're saying let's do away with the idea of limited government. Mm-hmm. What they're saying is let's go ahead and have a powerful government, and they're assuming somehow that they'll be in charge and that they'll be able to use that power of government to enforce their ideas and to impose their ideas on the rest of the country. But again, I have to laugh because I, you know, I there 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 can't be six percent of the American people who would ever support that kind of agenda. So what makes you think if you're going to give government the power to be able to impose preferences on other people? What makes you think it's going to be you who gets to decide what the common good is? Well, that, what, what makes you what makes you think that you're going to be the ones in charge? And this is why I've always said that the genius of the American experiment is that given human nature, given factions, given religious differences and cultural differences and individual differences, given all those things, 
limited government and individual liberty is the best we can do. It may not be perfect, but it's the best we can do. Just like capitalism isn't perfect, it's just better than every other system. Limited government and individual liberty is not perfect, but it's better than anything else. And what these common good conservatives are doing is tossing the fundamental idea of the American experiment. They're tossing the very idea of limited government, individual liberty, and self-government. And they're wanting to go back to the bad old days where the strong get to impose their views on everybody else. And the problem is these these common good conservatives are never going to be the strong. They're never going to be they're never going to be the ones who get to define what the common good is. Well, let me so, let, let me stop you there. Just because in in Germany in the late in the late 20s, the, the those who were following Hitler was a very, very small percentage. By the early 30s, they start get they, they start gaining. And by January 33, he's made chancellor. You sort of think that can't happen here, but it could happen here if enough people, if you if you have economic malaise, you have a group that seems to be doing something that people are listening to. And I'll tell you, just the uh, I, I, I agree with Davidson on this. He should not be calling himself a conservative because he is not one. Uh, Because the reason you want the limited government there is because you know the power of the government can do bad things. And when you start saying we need to embrace the power of the government to do the things we want, uh, that that is no longer anything that I was I would see as conservative. But that's uh, as nationalism comes in. And uh, again, I'm going back to Hitler. The uh, it was the national. They were national socialists. And the difference between them as socialists and Russia as socialist slash communist is they said we're not an international group. We are focusing on Germany and Germany alone. And we want to make sure that Germany survives. And you hear some of the echoes in some of the things that we're hearing now. I'd be surprised if that if the. If our if the movement here in the states ever got much bigger than that, but sometimes those things happen. So I think you and I will both uh, credit John Daniel Davidson for at least being right about the fact that what you're advocating is not conservative. So you should stop calling yourself conservative. Uh, but we at the Institute for Policy Innovation, we are conservative. We still believe in limited government. We still believe in free markets. We still believe in individual liberty. We still believe in the Reagan fusionist conservative movement, and we want the folks in our audience to understand this tension that's going on right now on the right. And we want our audience to understand why we at IPI have huge problems with this and why we have huge problems with some of our sister organizations who are giving air and who are giving oxygen to these ideas. Common good conservatism is turning its back on the American experiment. It's turning its back on limited government. It's turning its back on free markets. It's turning its back on the idea of individual liberty and self-government. And one more thing, and, it's turning its back on the limits on the majority that we um, that we have within the Senate and other areas which are meant to sort of restrain the majority from doing anything it wants. That's a very good point, and I really appreciate it. Um, let's wrap up by saying the founders were not wrong. Classical liberalism is not wrong. John Locke was not wrong. Adam Smith was not wrong. Montesquieu was not wrong. Thomas Jefferson was not wrong. James Madison was not wrong. Uh, limited government, limited constitutional government, 
free markets and individual liberty may not be perfect, but it's the best alternative anyone's ever come up with in the history of human civilization to being ruled, to having the strong use government to impose their views on the weak. And so we at IPI are absolutely, absolutely in opposition to these ideas of common good conservatism. And uh, we would ask the folks in our audience and our sister organizations in this movement to understand the danger of allowing these ideas to infect the conservative movement. They need to be opposed. Well, this has been a particularly ranty and a particularly philosophical episode of our Institute for Policy Innovation podcast, but I hope you found it interesting and I hope you found it helpful. We would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org and to sign up if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? We're also interested in your comments and feedback. And you can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.